Hello, welcome to another story from the CRISPR drawer. This is going to be a no-named episode. It's pretty much just a rant of me. After uh, the last two weeks of sitting around seeing the news, this is a post-E3, so my E3 one's already been up. The E3 lettuce wrap-up is done. Um, I had a games night with a bunch of friends. Haven't gotten around to editing that yet, so that will come pretty soon. Uh, yeah. So, first of all, I want to talk about specifically two things. The two things about this podcast, uh, this episode specifically, it's just completely a rant. And that rant is mostly about immigration and tariffs. So the immigration one, of course, has been the news, the hot-button issue of the United States, Customs Enforcement, uh, ICE and Border Patrol, and the people crossing the um, southern border of the United States from Mexico into the United States. Now, they're not just Mexicans, they're also people from Central America, Guatemala, El Salvador. Um, uh, I'm not sure if Bolivia or Belize are suffering as much, much but it's, it's people from suffering countries from those areas, specifically El Salvador, the, and um, probably Honduras, considering that Honduras has the like, highest murder rate in the world officially. So these countries are experiencing drastic, like bad economies, bad living conditions. People want to get the hell out of there, and taking the dangerous trek from their home country through Mexico up to the United States across the border, which they might get detained at, is still a better option in life than staying where they are. Now, I'm not, I don't like the idea of illegal immigration, but you understand, you start understanding when people view that there's no way I'm going to get through legally, let's just shot in the dark, take it the illegal way, and hope that something works out. Because even if I get in there, it's better than what I got now. And that's when I think immigration needs to open up. It needs to be not necessarily saying easier. It should be simpler, though. And by easier, I don't mean we're taking more people in, specifically the United States and Canada, duh, um, without any merit. What I mean is, is that it's faster in how we get this, the uh, stuff done. And that's hard to do, specifically when... I'm also a libertarian advocating for the reduction of bureaucracy. But considering that the vast majority of immigrants who travel from any country to any country today are generally people who adapt to that new culture, they take it, take the new culture, and they leave some of their old culture behind, and they are generally the better of it, in, um, even economic migrants... Uh, I'm not going to talk about the migrant issue in Europe because we're not experiencing that in North America. But very, very small percentage of people actually commit crimes. And very small percentage of illegal immigrants in the United States specifically commit any crime past just entering the United States illegally. Now, I know, go to port of entry, claim asylum, do refugee status. Like, you should do that. But the United States, you also got to open up your hands and tell open up your uh, arms and tell people about this. Maybe make some more centers that you're accepting them on and maybe make the service better. And I'm not going to get into the news um, specifically about Trump and the separation of families and stuff. Like People are fighting that out and I don't know enough one side or the other to make a strong claim. Like I don't like the idea of separating families and I understand that it was used as a deterrent and that Trump stopped, uh, used the executive order to stop catch and release, which was basically, we're going to, you're a group of people, a family who has crossed the border illegally, 
you're claiming asylum. We're going to let you go from detention centers or and stuff like that, um, basically monitoring facilities, and let you go to the United States for having a hearing. And I wish those hearings would speed up in civil court, but you know, the world's not perfect. And I do understand the United States, specifically from a security perspective, would want to keep track of these people. Um, but, eh. well, how many terrorists uh, in the, have entered the United States illegally from the southern border that have committed attacks that we can prove? I mean, I know there's the inkling that it could happen, and I think there's very slight evidence of people who potentially have been radicalized but never committed any attack has been there. I don't know any concrete stories about it, but I know there's references to it. Also, um, I'm going to talk about Sicario 2, which I saw last night, um, which was uh, Friday, June 29th. I'm recording this very late, Saturday, June 30th. So... Tomorrow is July 1st, Canada Day. We got independence by asking politely and keeping the royalty on the money. And we also got a really shit deal when we wrote our constitution, specifically because of Quebec. And this little brilliant thing called equalization payments, which is becoming worse and worse all the time. Such as a... Well, this is a side rant, but... Non-renewable resources don't get measured against... Your uh, the income of the province. So if you make a lot of money from non-renewable resources, it stops you from becoming a have-not province. But if you have a drop in that, that isn't measured, so it doesn't matter. It's renewable resources and manufacturing that is the measurement of um, GDP for the province and so that determines if you should get it. Oh, by the way, Quebec's getting $11 billion this go-round. I could get into the Canadian government's BS about that, but again, I'm not fully informed of all that, but I also know that the, the idea of the equalization payments is to make sure that there is a close to uniform standard of living across the entire country because resources and money travels to... Like, money usually follows high-functioning and resources, so manufacturing is pays a little bit less than resource extraction specifically heavy resource extraction which goes on in northern alberta and the fort mcmurray and the oil sands operations and stuff like that that's a lot of equity so you pull that oil to the ground and you can make a lot of money because a barrel of oil is worth a lot manufacturing is expensive and you don't get as much bang for your buck and also technology is making employment of those people who work in manufacturing jobs more obsolete or reducing the amount of heads you need to actually run that job. So you, that's why Ontario has been having problems is because they bet on f major mass factory stuff and then the robots came along and started automa automation of various plants and stuff and the unions fought it tooth and nail and they don't want to give up their money and you see I'm already going scatterbrained but that's why Ontario started suffering as and oh yeah they're, they're I talked about their election, about how they elected Rob Ford and the Conservatives. Who knows if that's actually going to work out in the long run or not. So, back to the immigration thing is, is that, specifically, the United States is having an issue. Um, the media and their thing about catch and release and separating children, I get into that. 
when you're one of the most economically powerful countries in the world and you're one of the most economically affluent countries in the world and you also have an issue where a considerable amount of your regular population, I guess you should say your existing nationalized citizenry, that's not even the right word, but your existing citizens, specifically those who have become the middle class side of your country, they generally don't want to do lower menial jobs and also reason talks about why immigration is good because you go both get high skilled and low skilled workers and low skilled workers are less likely to um uh, uh, reason magazine had it basically describes they're not as willing to in lock into a community and stay there forever they're going to move with the jobs they're going to move with the money so a filipino nanny might be making 15 dollars an hour in la now, if she's able to um, leave L.A. and go to, let's say, I pr- probably this is not the factual statement, but let's just put this out there. If she can make $25 an hour in Las Vegas doing the same job, she's going to pack up and leave L.A. and go to Las Vegas. Also, the benefit of the American dollar goes a lot longer. And as a Canadian who the American dollar is like 130 Canadian or something like that, it's, like, it's almost 30%. Um, difference in the in the cost. I have a very I have an app that gives me currency. Actually, let's, let's take a look at that. That's actually interesting. Uh, but the American dollar goes a long way. Way, which is quite fascinating. So let's see. Canada, U.S. Right now, one Canadian dollar is worth seventy six American cents. So that's almost a quarter less. That's Almost, just a little bit less. That's 24 cents. Uh, the, the American dollar travels farther than the Canadian dollar does. Man, if you're using the American dollar as the reserve currency in the world, that makes it pretty nice. But you're able to travel. Low-skilled workers are, mo- are going to be more mobile than high-skilled workers. High-skilled workers are going to be willing to spend the money, invest in the location they're at, um, and they want to stay there. They want to create legacies. They want to be part. Um, they almost want to become part of institutions. Low-skilled workers, workers uh, nannies, gardeners, farmers, stuff like that. Even there, they are still institutions by the idea of the service they provide, and they provide a, a unfortunately thank thankless service in a lot of cases, and are abused by certain people. And also, the media puts them in a bad location, but. It's a way to make money, it's a job, it's a lifestyle, and if they're able to come by themselves, land, become a proper like resident, a land resident of the United States, and possibly even a citizen, and bring their family over, and their family adds more jobs, and then they start their own company, it's just, the economics is beneficial in the long run. Plus, it frees up more people to do higher-skilled, higher-technology-based jobs, jobs uh, that are willing to take the education that are willing to invest and have the ability to invest in more money. Now, those low-skilled people, and specifically in the United States, and less so in Canada, but in the United States and very, very, very pro-capitalist countries, they're not going to be always in that low-skilled area. The next generation, their kids could become millionaires and billionaires. It's possible. It's definitely a hard road, but it's definitely possible, and we've seen it happen in the United States. I mean, Bill Gates isn't one of the richest people in the world because 
his family was rich. No, it's because he brilliantly took a bunch of ideas. He had a chance to play around with one of the best computer systems at MIT when he was there as a student for a very short period of time. He figured out how to take multiple technologies, such as Windows, which he stole from Xerox, and um, various other computer components from uh, IBM, and even emulated some stuff that, w that Apple was doing, and made the Windows made Microsoft and then the Windows operating system and bought DOS. Um, also can't forget that. And won with that. But the idea was he didn't create something perfect. He combined it existing things in. And because he was able to do that, that he, it's because he wasn't stressed about other things and he had the chance and I'm rambling on that. But basically it means that if we're not pressured to do the jobs we don't want to do, we're going to try to seek out the work we envision we want to do. Now, he's not saying that immigrants should only be doing low, menial jobs. No, no, no. You get a guy who's from India who's a nuclear physicist, get him, in a, get him working on nuclear physics. There's a lot of these brilliant people around the world who have been, who unfortunately don't have what we consider Western grade education because our Western schools are an industry that does not want to give accreditation to people outside of it. Such, I have a friend who, um, he used to be a real estate agent in the United States. He's moved to Canada. Now he can't be. He, and he has to go through all these very things to join the association. And it's the argument against occupational licensing, how the occupational licensing group has a like reason to restrict the amount of people who get in it because either they want to keep wages high for their and control the labor versus the cost is high, as opposed to what the universities did with professorship, which was expand professorship until instead of getting six-figure salaries for being professors, you're looking at mid-five figures, and you have to do all this other stuff on the side, side which um, um, Eric Weinstein, uh, frick, I can't get um, Eric Weinstein uh, talks about, I don't know if it's Weinstein or Weinstein, I'm forgetting, I know, Har I think it's Harvey Weinstein, so it's Eric Weinstein, I'm bad, but Eric Weinstein talks about this, how the professorship in the United States, and I also watched a video of him today with Dave Rubin, and debating with Jordan Peterson and Ben Shapiro, I bet I'm probably going to lose the listeners if this thing became phenomenal, like, largely listened to, but it's not based on just three, four of those names, but the idea of how the economy has been going up very steeply, and how, at a certain point, income for the median individual has not followed the same trajectory post the 1970s, and I can understand that. Yeah, blah, blah, getting on. Immigration is good. Um, I mean, you shouldn't have some ability to control it, because you don't want to open the floodgates and just let anybody in. And because then you have an issue where you're flooding an economy of low-skilled workers, which means they're wiping out their own wages. And if they don't have any skills, it's going to cost a lot of money to bring them up, which is detrimental to the society, because society then has to decide, do we spend money on adapting our on improving ourselves, or do we spend money on improving on them and leeches? Even though evidence says that migrants, specifically the United States, are less likely to use welfare than second- and third-generation citizens. Okay. And then, of course, there's the whole Trump thing with the separating families and the media. And, uh, I don't want to get into that today. Today, In fact, I, I don't even want to get into it because... <sighs> There's so many opinions on that matter, and there's various facts. It's just 
time kind of jumped on something a little too quickly, and then that that picture is more than it should be, and that story, once people started learning more about it, wasn't the way it was, and then you have the perception screen, and it kind of leads credence to don't trust fake news, but at the same time, it did bring to light a situation that was going on. So while the story that launched it may have been fake, or at least not fully informed when it went time to press and it sh- sh- print and should have been better verified. I think it's because the old media is um, suffering from uh, attention deficit disorder where they think that people, the consumers of it, only like the five to seven to eight minute sound bites and blah, 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 and something you can read very quickly. And yet we're finding evidence that long form podcasts such as what Joe Rogan's doing, Ruben, Sam Harris, and we're finding the younger, not just millennials, but also the Generation Xers, are willing to spend three to four hours to listening to people. And yet I'm also finding evidence where people slightly younger than me, two to three years younger than me, are much more interested in doing these, um, you know, doing Instagram stories and short little things about that. So we're seeing these two extremes in the new media world, and we're seeing the old media world not wanting to adjust to the new media world. And also, we're talking about that, and then we could expand that into advertising and deal with that a little bit later. I'll put that on something else. But basically my point is, is that immigration needs to make it simpler, more streamlined, more accepting. It's better when people are freely able to travel or as freely as possible travel. When we don't want barriers in the way just be for the sake of putting barriers up. Barriers should be there, but they should be there for a very specific reason. If you're going to argue security, you need to make sure you need to argue a coherent strategy as why that security is necessary. You need to have proof. Now, probably pre the internet, it would be easier to say, "Oh, well, we we couldn't. We need to restrict people coming from these places because they are going to radicalize and cause threats, not just Islamic terrorism, but also left wing based terrorism and right wing based. You're going to have Nazis, neo Nazis, and fascists committing stuff, and you're also going to have um, socialists and you know far lefties doing their things, like the weather underground. You get you get there's terribles on." the wings of the spectrum completely. And when you look at that, you want to try to restrict those groups, the bad guys, but you have to define them. And it's much easier to define them when information didn't travel as far. Because you could say, well, we know that these guys are always the exact same. They're always coming out of this small region because the word of mouth can only spread their information so far. They get radicalized or they start believing something over there and we can stop them. With the internet... And the ability of instant access to information. And this hasn't happened yet, thankfully. But it could be possible, much like TV shows like 24 and various things, where you could have a a kid who grew up Roman Catholic, who became an atheist, has basically lived a hedonistic lifestyle, has found that he has no value in life, and then finds something either in a religious terrorist organization because he thinks like, oh, there's something to do or a ideological terrorist organization where it's like, well, that would explain that would put the world in the frame that makes sense to me and blah, I'll do something. Blah, blah, I'll do something. And the information is spreading so quickly he can 
he and uh, how we're able to tune out information we disagree with as easily because of information spread and how we're able to narrow our focus only to what we agree with. We're finding this, um, basically these threats are, these um, individuals transcend borders and are harder to stop. But you can't just say, oh, the threat's only going to come from this part of the world. It may not. It may, it may actually be originating in your place. And then you get into the surveillance state arguments and why you, it's oh, it's like uh, it's a messy thing. You don't like the sur- the state sur- spying on you, and it's not good that the state curtails civil and hu- civil rights and human rights and right and constitutional based rights in the name of security. Sometimes it has to happen, but if you're going to argue that it has to happen, you have to do hopefully say that there is an end date to this conflict that we're fighting, and if there isn't. then are we just going to give up a right permanently? Are we just expecting that to go away because of the new world? Because the new world is scary? Well, <laughs> you know, big news. Anything that we don't understand that well is technically scary. Space, we know it's a vacuum. We have no idea if there's anything out there that's going to kill us tomorrow or not. We know that there are certain asteroids and meteorites and, well, not meteorites, but meteors flying around our solar system that could wipe out, the pl- wipe out all life on Earth very, very, very easily. We're tracking as many of those as we can. We're not tracking the ones that may only destroy a city or two because it's very hard to keep track of all those things. And if we're going to live in this constant fear of the end is near and it's going to happen no matter what, well, then, I hate to say it, but the suicide guys who say, like, put a, bull- put a gun into your mouth and pull the trigger is probably the easiest way out. But mankind's never sat down in the face of adversity. We've taken it head on, and we've done pretty damn well throughout our existence. Uh, and on to, and, you know, just going on to that. We can keep moving forward. We, we can keep surmounting these obstacles. And specifically with immigration, we're going to find ways to make this easier. We're going to find them to make it better. It's just that, will we do it fast enough and will we, we do it right? Or will we make it like, oh, we have to protect ourselves and we have to protect our families and we have to do this? Or are we going to say, or are we going to go completely the other way? It's like, well, the, the idea of the nation state is kind of pointless besides from the welfare project. And those are a few collectivist ideas. Or are we going to go the individualistic where it's like, well, we need the idea of security and a definition of a territorial control to make sure that rights are not being abused. And we need to make sure that the people coming in, like we know how many people are entering our country just because it's good to know. So that way we know the amount of population that's voting and for a democratic society or a, republic, or a democratic republic. It's good to know how many people are in your country, how many people are citizens of your country that have the right to vote how many people, uh, you know, that franchise have that franchisement right and suffrage. And it's good to know that because then it also makes, um, as much as libertarians don't like this, it allows governments to pl- hopefully plan. And granted, this is like super optimistic if governments were run by competent people and bureaucracies weren't, weren't um, largely places where innovation went to die. But in fact, 
saw their budget, saw we need to find a way to make these smaller budgets more efficient, which were beacons of efficiency versus what they are as bloated um, operations that slow things down. Knowing how many people live in your in your place based on censuses and also based on travel information from airports and ports of entry of your country and asylum, refugees, and all this other stuff, it will allow governments to figure out how they're going to spend their money, which means that they won't have as much waste. I mean, granted, this is super ideal. There's no way this is going to happen, but it's super ideal. Blah, 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 blah. That's my immigration uh, thing is, is that it needs to be easier, faster, and smarter. And, of course, smarter is, like, knowing who to look for. Who's the bad guy? Who do you not want in here? And that is the hardest thing. Because that bad guy may not be who you think he is. He may not be the stereotypical um, from the, you know, from uh, the northern region of Pakistan, the borders of Afghanistan, that tribal region where the Taliban came out of. It may not be that guy in the one year. It may not be ISIS. It may not be a communist or a communist sympathizer or a socialist who got radicalized in South America or Eastern or Western Europe or China. It could be an Australian. It could be a Canadian. It could be a it could be a fifth generation European, uh, British citizen. Could be a Caucasian. Could be. Of some black person, it could be an Asian, Southeast Asian, so you know China, Japan, Laos, Cambodia, Vietnam. It could be be a an Indian or groups of that color. Color. It could be a Middle Eastern. It could be an Africa. Who knows what the threat could be in the future? And it's our and just blanket defending against everybody means that you're blanket insulting everybody. Which shouldn't be done. Also, racial profiling is like that doesn't work either because there are bad people in of every single group. But the vast majority of every single group is pretty much good. Like ninety nine percent of a group is pretty much good. It's that one percent, even and that one percent is probably an exaggerated number, except in very 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 few cases in history. So we need to make this easier. We need to make this better. And this leads me into an immigration and the free travel of people and ideas is important. That's why immigration is important because you get the, the information and culture coming with them. And they bring ideas in that culture, which it's, it's negative not to have it. Because if you don't know what's going on in the world, even with the information, like if we don't understand each other's cultures, how the heck are we going to mesh and make a better world together? Because otherwise we're going to all isolate each other from, from we're all going to isolate. We're all going to treat each other like the next door neighbor that we don't want to look over the fence at, that we want to give the middle finger to, and we only, you know, tolerate their existence. Yeah, Mexico is south of the United States and they build our cars for us, but otherwise they should shut the hell up and just give us tacos. That's a terrible way to live. It should be. Mexico is a country that's suffering from Unfortunately, a sort of civil war because of the drug and the cartel issues that are going on. A lot of gang violence based on these drug cartels. And it's almost a civil war because they've taken over small towns and hurt a lot of people and then been pushed out. And the Mexican military is trying to fight them. 
And no matter how they spin it, it's always been bad. And the corruption in Mexico has allowed this to exist for a long time. But Mexico's also been the butt of a joke for the United States. That corruption exists because there's an economic reason to keep Mexico corrupt. It keeps prices down on labor, which means that it's attractive for multinational corporations to put their factories there. And if they didn't, Mexico would have a hard time get would have a hard time establishing this. And also because of that corruption that makes those factories possible, it's harder for the lower class Mexicans to move up in the chain, to make their own business, to raise through the level. I'm being generalization here because it, it's probably not... It, there's evidence that probably goes against what I'm saying saying in scenarios, and I'm probably being super generalization, and it's wrong. But that's the problem, is, is that Canada and the U.S. Are, t- are technically first world countries, and Mexico is a first world country when you compare it to various other South American and Central American countries, which is sad when you think about that, because we all live, because Canada and the U.S., like being poor in Canada and being poor in the United States is different from being poor in Kenya, which is, ter- which is way worse than being poor in Mexico. But still, I, I, everything's relative, and the postmodernists will argue that, and it's just like, wor- the world is getting better, but the people at the top, it's... It's jumping less, so we're complaining more about it. And the people at the bottom are seeing these amazing things. They're like, why the hell are you guys stagnating? Because we are. We're starting to. And then we're also freaking out about robots and AI and all this other stuff. And keep going. So, immigration, finishing that off. Um, which goes into, which I'll just talk about a little bit about Sicario 2. Really liked it, really good movie. So my dad and his friend Dean, which is a great idea to go see. <laughs> Didn't get to have dinner yesterday night. Got off work at 6, drove home, changed, and went out to the movie. Eh, had some popcorn. It was good. Good, good. Uh, definitely an advocate for being able to reserve your seats at theaters. Starting to find out that's way fun. I would glad I'm happy that it's not a added price really for the West Hill for the Cineplex and West Hills or Landmark and I hopefully they make another landmark in Markham Mall, which is close to my house. This is Calgary based information for people who are listening internationally. Actually, which I there probably is one of you. And in the future there might be more. I don't know. Um anyway. Josh Brolin's good. Ontario Banderas is good. It can. I don't know where they're planning to go with this, if they're planning to make it a series or not. I th- think I read somewhere that they had greenlit another one after this one, which they've set up that it's going to work. Kurt Loder from Reason Magazine said it was a good action movie. Of course, his review I read after I saw my, after I saw the movie, which is good. I've seen some reviews that are just like, meh, about it, but eh, I like the first one. And it felt more actiony than the second one. This, uh, I, it felt more actiony this one than the se- first one. Like the first one was definitely much more of a thriller. Like Emily Blunt's character is just along for the ride to get the dirty work done, and she doesn't really understand. It's her discovering what what Josh Brolin characters and Antonio Banderas's character are actually like. And this one's like we know who these guys are. So let's just see them do what they do. 
instead of doing this third person on the wheel who has no, like this third wheel who has no idea what's going on. And it's like, we know now. To be honest, it was actually a really interesting way to introduce them in Sicario 1. Uh, yeah, I would say if you like that type of action movies, it's definitely really good. I've seen quite a few movies this last week. So last weekend, I was at my parents' place dog-sitting their two dogs, um, Shirley and Teddy. And I watched uh, four movies. I watched uh, Street Kings, The Kingdom, um, Street Kings, directed by David Ayers, uh, Kingdom, directed by Peter Berg, uh, and then two movies by Michael Mann, Collateral and Heat. By the way, The Kingdom is the only Blu-ray I know that has a that has the feature where it shows you, at least I think it's the kingdom, sorry that are Street Kings, One, but I think it's the kingdom, which has a, when you're watching the Blu-ray, and this is talking to people who are Blu-ray players and who are connected to the internet, not people who stream their movies from Netflix or Amazon Prime or various other services, but it downloaded up-to-date um, tra- trailers. It's like, Mission Impossible Fallout, and I'm like, this movie is 2005, I think? Mission Impossible Fallout comes out this year. What the... Oh, why... And I understand why now, but why back then when they started having Blu-rays? Because this Blu-ray must have come out around 2012, 2013, post the Blu-ray craze. Craze and the idea of the Wi-Fi connected Blu-ray player. Because that's the only reason why, but it's like, why are less things doing that? Now, I understand that Blu-ray players aren't big selling ticket items anymore because it's cheaper to buy an Apple TV or cheaper just to plug your computer into it. And a lot of people have these, you know, smart devices such as tablets and stuff that can be plugged into their TV or can have screen mirroring like your cell phone and stuff like that. So I understand why they're not doing it as much. But still, it's a unique thing. Granted, I don't like watching trailers on my DVDs anyway. It's like extra advertising. I paid to buy your movie. I paid the ticket. I paid the cost of the DVD construction with the plastic box. I want to watch it many times. Your advertisements will probably... It's blanket advertising. It's old-fashioned advertising. It's probably like if 0.1% or 0.01% of the people who buy that DVD go and see any of those ads in that movie, it probably is paid for itself. I don't know. No. I think YouTube and online video services such as that have largely put that idea out of existence. And sometimes the ads aren't even movies that are in the same genre, which is kind of like, you know, I want to watch an action flick, and yet you've got a horror film's trailer on my action flick? It's not made by the, it's only it's only because it's being either the, like the distribution rights the same studio or something like that. That's annoying. It takes away from the movie experience for me. And of course, I'm also talking about like ads prior to movies, even theaters take a bit away from it. I do appreciate them sometime, but you know, I saw the ad for um, Equalizer Two with Denzel Washington. But I already knew I was, was going to consider go see that movie before I saw the ad on um, Friday night in theaters. I always, my dad and I were like, we're going to go see that no matter what. This this ad did not change our, our minds. We knew the movie was coming because of YouTube and Facebook. 
So now onto the next thing is other issues with borders. What happens with tariffs? Because there are tariffs being involved with the U.S. and Canada because of the NAFTA renegotiation and Trump being a protectionist and not understanding what his tariffs will actually do in the long run to his country. And now we also get to have Canada responding back by putting tariffs on American-made products. The beautiful thing about these two governments is they don't understand that tariffs are taxes on your own citizens to block them from accessing materials and goods from another place. Only in peacetime are tariffs... Like, let's put it this way. So, if this was a war... If Canada and the U.S. were at war with each other, we'd be. This would be economic blockades and sanctions. But in peacetime, because we're friends, we're just going to call them tariffs and block each other from selling our goods at free trade costs. So basically, there's the you know, you only pay the in Canada you'd only pay the consumption tax, which is the GST, which is five percent in Alberta. Plus, you probably pay a to import stuff. That's the duty tax. You probably have the provinces, specifically Ontario, Quebec, you probably have provinces try to argue that PST should be put on that, but... Mm. More taxes. And by a libertarian standpoint, a consumption tax is probably the most even tax, but it needs to be small. And it should only be one. It shouldn't be like how the government, the Canadian government, uh, federal government, GST only affects certain items but in places like bc where they've the harmonized sales tax which is the pst plus the gst put in what the gst doesn't hit the pst does but the hst just claims it all so you might have an object which is you know i don't i don't know what it is in bc but let's say the the hst is 12 percent and you go buy an apple and an apple isn't is not a gst thing it's like you know fruit doesn't get hit by gst now you're paying 12 percent to the provincial government of british columbia because it's a harmonized sales tax it's on absolutely everything kind of shady in my book i don't like that but i do think that consumption taxes are probably the most evenly distributed taxation uh income tax is just punishment on on income although consumption tax is punishment on consuming goods but you just consume less of them, so you save more money and you pay up, and the government has to then realize that they are starting with zero every year. Not they are not guaranteed that people are going to buy shit. Well, people are going to buy food, and they might buy, and they're going to buy clothes, and they're probably going to buy ga gas and electricity. But they're not. But they may not go out and buy a four thousand dollar computer every year. They may not go and buy a new car every freaking year. And by a new car, I mean like a new car from a dealership no financing like straight up like the 40 to 100 thousand dollar car pay it all off in one go i'm not talking about leasing i'm not talking about a used car i'm talking about a brand new straight from the factory that current model your car and if people reduce that because you have because the only taxation is on them spending that money you're going to have well you're probably going to have less develop, less overbuilding of stock. And, you, and you're also going to have people making smarter decisions with their money. Not just saving more, but investing more in better means that are going to cost less. 
Now, I know that there's a better way to actually argue for the consumption tax, but that's also the consumption tax only happens in a in my standpoint when all their taxes are gone. You don't you're not paying property taxes, you're not paying freaking carbon taxes, you're not paying um fucking uh, you know, income taxes. You're not paying that bullshit. The only tax you pay is your consumption tax when you buy a good and you don't get it for and I would argue that you do not pay it on a service. So if you're having a electrician come into your house, his labor is not cons- it's not a consumption tax. It's not hit by a consumption tax. But his goods that he will charge you will have the consumption tax in it. Now granted, I probably that's not the most efficient way. There's way smarter people out there who've probably thought of way smarter ways to do that. Anyway, Milton Freeman's rolling over his grave because of the frickin' increasing in tariffs. And, of course, now it's a protectionist attitude, and I just saw on Facebook, it was like, buy Canadian to, to, to make sure that money doesn't go across the board. It's like, well, I don't think you guys understand that if I buy an American good, I'm buying the American good at the American price, plus the tax the Canadian government has forced on it to make it seem less, seem more expensive, and thus supposed to stop me from buying it. And that tax then goes to the Canadian government because it's a surplus item. So, <laughs> and that's why I hate this. That's why I hate tariffs. Your tariffs aren't stopping, Bing, the, the producer in America shipping the good here. He's just passing it on to the final provider. The final buyer, which is going to be the Canadian. And for the Americans, it's the same thing. You're going to put tariffs on Canadian aluminum? Well, guess who's going to be hurt by that? Not Canadian companies, because Canadian companies are going to pass the cost on to the American consumers of it. Or the Canadian companies, much like the American companies are going to do with the Canadian tariffs, are going to find consumers elsewhere in the world that aren't going to charge more money for it. Now, there are going to be some businesses that aren't going to have that ability of flex are not going to have the ability to choose new markets. They might just glow. They might just go out of business, sell off, or claim as a loss and retire. That's great. That's great. Two countries that are technically the best friends you could ever have, Canada and the United States, because of stupid protectionist policies that both of them are trying to do by defending their idea that their economy is the right way, when really we should be working together instead of bickering over these tiny, tiny, tiny issues. It's like, yeah, Canada's making a little bit of money. It's like, this is, I don't like Trump and I don't like Trudeau on this. Fucking free trade is the way to go. Now, I know economically there is a point where impossible things will ultimately end in terrible ways. Impossible things can't go on forever. And economics and the idea of free trade is, it, it becomes, you know, when things grow exponentially, they eventually fail. Blah, blah, blah. It's just like Moore's Law and that technology. Uh, but we need to find a way to make sure that material goods and finished goods and all this stuff is traveling well, as well as people and ideas are traveling effectively. But tariffs are essentially punishing your own country for bad trade deals, for nostalgic belief that you can take back an industry that you really can't, that time has changed. Like, 
Trump's idea of doing these trade tariffs makes him think that the United States is 1944, where the U.S. steel industry is the most powerful object, is, you know, powered the U.S. Army to win war, help win World War II, provided tanks to, to the, the Allied nations, guns to the Allied nations, airplanes to the Allied nations. And so did Canada. We're not like that anymore. We're not the mass manufacturers we were 50 years ago. China and India have taken those claims from us. Countries in Africa are, be are becoming better economic nations at, at using factories. Granted, it's because it's their labor is considerably cheaper, and we're more in the service industry, industry and the technological development industry. But, you know, th this is also this is one other issue with the economy of where the idea of you prepare for one job and your life is ultimately starting to fail. And it's, it's the baby boomer generation, the generation slightly after them, which didn't prepare for a workspace in the future where their skills that they learned when they were younger weren't going to transfer in anything. Now, some, some skills, some soft skills transfer pretty well from all sorts of stuff. But if you graduated from high school in 1956, and you decided what you were going to do for your... Well, let's, let's, let's pull it up. You graduated high school in 1980. And you decided that what you were going to do is you were going to go work for the Ford Motor Company in Ontario. And you got there and you got your job and you were making your $25 an hour. I, it's probably cheap now. It's probably closer to like $50 an hour. I don't know the exact cost what the uh, auto union workers are getting there at entry level. But you were probably doing pretty well back then. But all you know is you may all you might know is how to spot weld one spot on one particular make of car. And then you got trained when the new make of car came out. And that's all you've been doing for thirty-eight fucking years. And you've probably learned some more stuff on the way. I'm Making the assumption that you've only done one thing is an incredibly simple and flat-minded way to think about this. But if all you've ever done is work in these car factories. Now, granted, if you're 38 years you've been working there, you're, you're almost at retirement age. You've got about f seven more years before you're retiring. Now, let's bring it that you're in 2000, that you started doing this in the year 2000. 20 years less. You've only been doing it for 18 years. And you realize that that factory you're working in is going to close down next year. Now I go back to the days of uh, Michael Moore's uh, movie uh, documentary, Roger and Me, about the U about GM shutting down a lot of their plants in Flint, Michigan, and and around Detroit. Imagine those people who spent all those years, and their jobs are just gone because it was easier to put those jobs, move the technology, and put it in another country, Mexico, maybe even move them overseas. Like, you know. There are some GM is making some of their vehicles at the Daewoo plant in in Korea. I think the Buick Enclave is one of them. Those crossover and sort of small SUV Buicks are are I think all being made in Korea, because um, their their um, VIN numbers start with KL. When I saw them at the Calgary Auto Show, I don't know if they're all being made. There may not be a hundred percent production line there, but it sounds like it. But, like, is GM, unless they get a giant grant from a government and huge guarantees, are they going to shut down that plant 
where they might be paying the Koreans a third, uh, you know, a half of what they're paying the Americans, and they're getting twice the labor quality out of it. Why would they freaking risk? Why would they change that deal? Why would they bring those cars back? They're paying, you know, maybe Koreans, and maybe they're paying a lot of money to the Koreans to build machines to automate the factory versus bring them back to the United States where they're probably going to have to, you know, they're probably going to go in if they were doing it, say like Hyundai and Honda and Toyota, which are building huge plants in the United States, which are employing tons of people, but they're putting them in right to work states that don't have that. It's very hard to unionize those plants because they're relatively new. They're also using a lot of technology in those plants. So they're reducing the total workload and stress and they're they're streamlining the production and they're choosing what they're going to do and those factories are you know there's various things they're doing that are improving on they figured out the flaw the old guard did and a lot of these newer country companies hyundai uh toyota honda have realized because they didn't have a skin in the game 40 freaking years ago they didn't need to listen to the rules that the guys who had skin in the game four years ago did have they got to rewrite the rule book for themselves. Because they didn't have that legacy they had to fight with. Like GM, Dodge, and Chrysler and Ford had. Ford's done kind of okay. But, you know, it's sad that Ford's getting rid of their car line besides from the Mustang. But North America, if if you live north of, of um, the middle of the United States... And by that I mean in in the latitude. You have winter at a part of year where you're probably going to want an all-wheel drive vehicle. And I had to say the year the the European uh, higher-grade luxury brand manufacturers and the and the Asian market have made better all-wheel drive cars than the North Americans have. Now the North American response has been the crossover of the SU, the crossover uh, you know vehicle the smaller SUV and the regular SUV and the truck and the trucks are still going strong and the SUVs are becoming the predominant choice in the United States and Canada as opposed to minivans now minivans and you know like the Ford Windstars and the Grand Caravan stuff I don't even know what they're calling them now made by the um, big guys. Um, those lines, I'm fairly certain those lines aren't being called the same thing. But, you know, those, those minivans that if you're 28 years old, if you're 20 or so years old, your parents probably had one when, if you had two or three kids, if you had a brother or two, or a sister or two, you know, you had siblings, you probably had a van at some point. Your family probably had a van to drive you around in. And it's because vans hold a lot of stuff. Now, even a long-ass Suburban still has a hard time fighting with the van because it's the height. Like, the Suburban's got an extra, you know, it's got, like, four, it's got, like, three inches more clearance off the ground, and it does, and it's not taller. So it's actually a smaller package. It's long, but it's smaller package, and it's not as laid out as nicely for cargo as, as um, vans are. Grand, those Chevy Astros, those... <laughs> I don't know why I never like the looks of them. I understand why people like them, but uh, I don't like them. But going back to the tariffs and stuff and the economics of it all, it's just, it's terrible about this. 
And the worst thing is, is that when you start finding out that people want a product that they can't have, or it's more expensive to have, let's say that Canadians love Heinz ketchup, which is made in the United States, so now it's going to be charged more based on these Canadian government tariffs, and of course the United States is going to pass that tax on to the Canadian citizens because it's, you know, it's not like Heinz is paying for it. They're just upping. They're just going to up their rates to make their profit margin the same. They're not going to let their profit margin shrink because of those tariffs, especially if they know that twenty it, that ten cents more a bottle that most Canadians are going to pay. Most of that target market is going to pay. Their their percentage of loss is probably so well calculated that it's not that dangerous of a thing. Continuing on from that, now. If if it went to protectionist attitude where the cost became prohibitive to buy the tariffed item, so let's let's go to a more extreme example. Let's say that Canada wanted to get back into the TV making business, and they started making flat screen TVs to compete with Sony, Samsung, LG, Panasonic, uh, Sharp. Uh, does Toshiba still make some? I think Toshiba still does. Yeah, there, uh, and then there's various other companies that, you know, you know, but there's only a few OEMs that actually do it. So they increase the cost of, so they decide that we're going to build a flat screen TV. And it costs us to build a 65-inch flat screen TV in Canada about 4000 Canadian dollars. That's the construction cost to have a successful product run with profit. That's how much it costs for the consumer to buy it for that to be profitable for the Canadian company to do it. And Canada wants that company to succeed. Are they going to jack up the price from all the other guys to make sure they're about five to $6,000? Now, let's assume that the quality is equivalent. Like, they got uh, the, the Canadian company for the $4,000 TV that they're jacking up a $3,000 to $5,000 tariff on the you're on the Japanese, uh, you know, Chinese and Samsung, and, and I mean um, Korean-made TVs, to make up the difference. Let's assume that that all works perfectly well. Really well, that there's quality differences. It's just completely brand name now, and very, very minute things that only the top one percent of video of um, TV viewers are going to want. I should also compare put projectors into that market, but whatever. It's like, you know, there's this 1% of enthusiasts that are actually going to give a shit about absolutely everything on it. Like me as a gamer, my big screen TV I bought downstairs, I bought the best one I could in Canada for screen latency. Just because I wanted it's a gaming TV. It's mostly a gaming TV, so I bought the best one of that. I got for a deal. But now, let's take that, so I pay... not going to disclose how much I paid, but let's say that I now with the tariff and the increase and the X amount of money and the Canadian equivalent's four thousand dollars, and so they jack the uh, Europe, the Japanese equivalent up to six thousand dollars because they want to make sure the Canadian one succeeds, and they want to make the other ones out of the price range. Now, if they're perfectly equivalent, all things being equal, you're going to go for the Canadian one. Worms of the Canadian ones shit instead. They're not perfectly great. Fine. The Sony, the, the Sony TV, the Samsung TV, the LG TV, the Panasonic TV, the Toshiba, the... Does Mitsubishi even make TVs anymore? I don't think so. They made, they made these cool laser view ones that I wish I had gotten my hands on because I heard only good things about them. But... Hitachi? I think they make some? I don't know. Um, but let's, go, let's, let's assume that the Canadian... 
knockoff. Or the Canadian competitor is absolute shit. It's fucking terrible. It screen tears all the time. The boards that are on it are incredibly bad made together, and the soldering fails. Uh, the, H- the HDMI ports um, don't work work or have spotty connections so you have to put the cable in the right way and press it the right way or else you're not going to get signal uh, they have incredibly bad view angles they the screen darkens in certain spots the the uh, liquid crystal uh, let's with lcds let's say the crystals bleed into each other they're um they don't have any temperature control they heat up too much and let's just say let's throw everything at the book and and they screen burn, even though they technically couldn't. They are screen burning, and just everything that could go wrong is going wrong with these. Do you think that four thousand dollar or six thousand dollar price tag is going to impede people from buying the better one? Sure, they're going to buy the cheaper one first, but when they start questioning and seeing the shit, it's like, well, shit, I'm paying four thousand dollars every two years, or I can buy a six thousand dollar one and pay that once every seventeen, once every four to seven years. As long as it's more, as long as it's they, what they spend over a longer period of time. So if, if they spend that money once, but the product lasts longer than what they'd have to spend to buy the replacement one multiple times. Granted, these are smart economic people who aren't doing impulse buying. I'm assuming everyone's actually caring about that and understanding, like, I want this TV to last for six years, so I'm not going to spend money as if it fails so I want to buy a good TV in the last six years. And let's say that the Canadian TV is lasting two years and you have to buy three of them in that same period of time. And you know, you're at your sixth year and you're having to buy your fourth one. So you paid 6000 for the... So many one that lasted you six years. And at this point, you've bought three TVs that have failed at 4000 Canadian. So now you've paid 12000 You've paid twice the price. Why didn't you just buy two Sony TVs at the same time? And just have one sitting in storage ready to go. It's a question that's very hard to answer because when you get to that point, you're like, well, shit, why did I? I made a fucking terrible mistake, didn't I? And that's what protectionism starts to lead is you you get these terribly thought out decisions by groups. You get these, you get, um, you get government choosing winners and losers with the hopes of um, creating a strong national image, which is funny because tariffs are actually nationalistic and protectionistic and dangerous because if you believe that free trade and the world is going to grow with each other, then putting up barriers makes that growth harder and makes us become more adversarial. It's also funny how... uh, Now, I'm not going to say this is Trudeau, but how... how a considerable portion of the Canadian identity has been talking about how we're not American. And now with this tariff thing, is it's becoming even more relevant. And it's being pushed on the Canadian social media much more like, dump the Trump. Trump, uh, Canadians against Trump, and stuff like that, are just blasting off like saying, here, like, go to the grocery store. These are the products that are American. These are the Canadian versions you need to buy. It's like, No. French's ketchup to me is French's knockup of of Heinz ketchup is inferior in my book. I've tasted them both. I like Heinz. I'm not going to change that. 
are we going to start suddenly increasing the price of McDonald's because McDonald's is, a Canadian, is an American-made company, or is it because they have a headquarters, regional, a national headquarters in Canada? We're not, we're just basically going to wave that through. Also, that brings to the point: Are um, is Peter's Drive-In in Calgary going to raise the prices because they use Heinz tomato ketchup packets? See, these effects have much deeper impact than people think. It's like, oh, we're just going to stop one bad actor. You know, if this was a village, if we were talking about two villages that were trading with each other and you had one little trade argument for one little commodity, let's say one village had slightly, you know, both villages were able to do fill bronze. Um, go, let's go all the way back. Both both villages are able to cast bronze into swords and shields and plates and stuff like that and make them useful. But one village was a little bit better at it. But they, But they then also decided that they didn't want to buy the gra- they were going to not buy the grapes from one from the from village x because they wanted to grow their own so they su- start supporting their own because their belief is they were going to be strong and protectionistic and they're going to create an identity so the grapes grape growers in village y who got shafted by village x decided that they are not going to buy by the faster and slightly higher quality bronze and they're going to have to have their village learn how to make the bronze material you start seeing that that these skills take a long time to build up that they weren't have so village x they want they want their own grapes but they don't have the experience and village y doesn't have the experience of casting and molding molding bronze but now they have to because they've been dicks about comparing these things And eventually, they could probably come to a compromise because it's very small things. Things, and maybe they can argue. Maybe Village Y can argue. Oh, we don't need bronze because we've only got uh, our our guards who def- like we use stoneware and we use clay for a lot of our plates and stuff. So we don't need bronze for that, and we're not as concerned about decorations. And we use paints for all that, and we pretty much only need it for swords and shields uh, and arrowheads. Um, no, nah, arrowheads we use stone for. We need them for stor- swords and shields and armor for our soldiers, but we have a relatively large amount of that. We've already stockpiled. We just don't need any more. And the other village says, like, well, we, you know, grapes are a luxury good that we don't need so, from them, and we've got the willingness to take time off, and we've stored up all these caskets over a period of time. It's like... Even out of that, it becomes complicated. But when you start having, going from, maybe you only have two consumers in one village. So your failure is there is like, well, I'm still selling to my village completely, so I'm pretty much fine. And those two guys over there, it's like, well, they'll find somebody else to provide their service. When you're going into the millions and millions of people, 33-plus million Canadians, I think it's, uh, versus 300-plus million Americans, and you're finding over these things, and you start realizing the reason you're making these fights is because two, um, well, in Canada, it's sort of executive, sort of legislative, because the prime minister, who's the um, head of our, who is the head of, who's the representative of our government, that's from the governor general, but is the elected head of our government, which is actually his party is elected, and he is elected from within the part, by the party, to be their head. Versus the United States, where you vote for your president and you vote for the party in your Congress and your uh, your National Congress, 
be it the House of Representatives and the Senate and your state congresses and all that, blah, blah, blah. You see, um, you see the executive side that takes that power from the legislative. And they do things with it that are kind of strange. And you're like, was that really what I wanted? It sounds really nice on platitudes, but then you start experiencing it and you're like, shit. This wasn't the good best idea in the world. And it's largely because they want to get reelected. You start realizing that politics is a business. A business to keep yourself in power as long as possible. And maybe it's not even to keep yourself in power. It's a way to make sure that you have a good retirement fund. A good life afterwards. Cynically speaking, that as a political scientist, that's how I view a lot of politicians. Is it's, it's not about... Um, they start with this idea of, I'm going to serve and going to do really well for my people. And they get in the top and they realize, well, if I just do a couple of favors, help, help some groups in my districts get, the, the, in, get these contracts, blah, 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 and then I can get out in four years. I can go on either speaking circuit or I can get hired by a major international investment bank or something like that or a major law firm or blah, 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 get picked up as a consultant, and I can make six figures very quickly after having a really good six-figure salary when I was in there. Maybe even get seven figures in the private market. Plus, I have a damn good retirement fund paid for by the government and my taxpayers that's adjusted for inflation. Well, then why the frick would I want to give that up? And that's where the greed comes in. Which is why I think socialism doesn't work, because socialism requires that greed needs to be main, needs to be controlled at the individual level. And when the and when you have to have a hierarchy to make sure government works to distribute resources effectively, greed starts impeding that. No, no, no. I'm jumping all over the place. There was where I was going to tie this together. I'm trying to... I, I had it in my mind a minute ago. It was basically about how... Oh, fuck. Um... How was I going to tie this together between those two? Um, it was kind of about how... Okay, so in the United States specifically, both in the immigration and the tariff thing, it's how the legislative side of the federal government in the United States has failed to properly act on various issues and allowed the executive to interpret the way to do it. And we're seeing a similar thing in Canada, except because of how Canada's government is shaped, where you have the, um, uh, the parliament... Meant the um, which deals with the House of Representatives, which are our members of Parliament, they are elected, and then you have the appointed Senate. You start dealing with the issue where the Prime Minister, who is who over who is the head of the Parliament, he, the head of the nation, really. He he's not the head of state, um, he's the head of our government, but he also represents the executive side. Even though the Queen in Canada, who's represented for the Governor General, is actually the top head of the executive side. But they don't interfere with the Prime Minister and his administration and his cabinet and how they rule the executive branch. But it's kind of a failure on both of those. Um, the legislature allowing the executive to just write these rules. And that's also an argument of why minority governments are better, because in Canada... If Trudeau, if the liberals weren't in majority, they'd have a hard time enacting the idea of tariffs. Because if they try to do it with a minority government, it would probably be put to a vote and they might lose that motion. 
Now, I don't think that would be considered a budgetary or a fallen government, because usually it's budgets that, that or confidence motions that fall the government. But a tariff, considering it would be a tax, might be considered that. Hmm. Interesting. Uh, thought process that I just went down there, but yeah, don't really have much to expand upon that. I think the um, big thing is is that in the United States, it's it's the failure of the legislative uh, branch of the government, and there there will be judicial fights about this, and hopefully there are in Canada too. I'm not really going to talk about the Canadian Supreme Court because they're kind of being a little strange recently. But the the end thing is is that both these things stem from the idea of controlling transmission of either economic goods or people. And it's government trying to do so, control them under the guise of being beneficial to their, their citizenry, under a guise of maybe getting elected, or maybe trying to be the benevolent uh, leaders of their countries. But they're having negative consequences at a higher rate than they think, and they don't know how to respond to these higher rates of consequences. And the solutions, at least from my perspective, is don't put tariffs on stuff. Because you're just punishing your own citizenry for terrible trade deals that you've written out or trades that you've thrown away. Because you actually think the world is the simple where if I'm going to stop buying steel from China, then the steel mills in the United States will all magically reopen, even though a lot of them have been closed for 20 freaking years. And the experience and the technology and the knowledge is gone. And it will take many years to bring that all back. And it's also the thing of like, well, if I just build a big border wall, nobody's going to legally cross the United States into our country. It's like, also, there is a hypocrisy about immigration in Canada where Canadians don't want people crossing our southern border illegally, but we criticize the United States for defending their, for trying to control their border, their southern border with Mexico and their ocean borders and blocking people coming in that way. It's a hypocrisy that, you know, there's a lot of hypocrisy in the world. We don't really deal with it that well. No human does. We're all hypocrites in a way. But it's kind of just, it's funny how Canada fuses like, oh, we don't want people from the United States crossing who are potentially illegal immigrants from the United States crossing into Canada to get on our welfare service. Like, but when you see it on the nightly news when the Americans do it, you're like, oh, bad Americans, why can't they do what we do? Which is brings to the that Quebec crossing where the USMP were giving them water and are not really helping them across. I mean, they are detained, but it's like a slap on the wrist compared to what they get in the United States if they got caught. But then we're all like, oh, the United States just needs to stop these people from crossing our border. But when they cross our border, we don't really punish them for it. Now, I'm not advocating we punish them for it. But it just it shows how the groups talk out of both sides of their mouths to whatever side makes it. It's like, Canada, we want to see more compassionate. So we say, like, oh, look at the United States for being the bully to those poor migrants who have, like, you know, this undocumented uh, migrants who have nothing really made to live for back in their own country. And if they come to the United States, they're going to have an amazing life, and they probably will. I don't know if it's the amazing life they saw on TV, but it might be a more prosperous life than what they had. If they're willing to take that risk, 
are we really like and that's a big risk because you can die doing that I, I, I don't begrudge him for the attempt but then I, I continue on this by saying that Canada we 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 complain the same we complain for the same things when they cross our border we're like more migrants illegally crossing from the U.S. into Canada and are going on to our welfare system and taking up our space in our healthcare lines and blah, blah, blah. It's like that's one of the reasons I don't like the idea of, health, of socialized healthcare. But you want to seem compassionate, but you don't want to actually have your, get your hands dirty being compassionate. And I, I don't know what the solution to that is how that how your brain works that way it's like i can understand like no immigration or i can understand like the idea of open immigration or i can understand like well let's have empath empathetic immigration where people can come and go and we we we, we monitor like we we make sure we don't let everybody in but we're not super critical but it went like oh we're barely in the united states but they need to close their borders so people stop c- crossing ours because it's we don't like that bullshit, but if they, but if we actually, if they actually cro- close the border, we're going to fucking yell at them for it. It's like, so you don't want people crossing the United States to come into Canada illegally, but you don't want, but you don't want the United States blocking their borders. Like, what the, what? How do you fucking make those two cohesive? They don't. I don't know if they're fundamentally, I don't know how, there's probably a way to, argue with they probably say like well we're, we're fine with the people coming from cuba so they should get rid of the wet foot dry foot thing it's like okay well that's a asylum group but 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 we don't like the people coming from x y and z it's like okay so you're separating certain people out because it's convenient yeah it, and you see how, how i've gotten myself in this rant situation where i can't really figure out a, a good solution for it um If Canada wants to control the people coming into their border, it's our responsibility to do so. We can't tell another nation not to... We can't tell the other nations to stop sending people because they don't control who leaves. They control who comes in. And we control who enters our country. And if we're going to play... And if we're going to play uh, this, this bullshit where we blame the United States for people who enter the United States to quickly cross over to get to Canada because they'd rather be in Canada. And we tell the Americans, well, why aren't you catching them? And then when they come across, we get mad at the U.S. for letting them across, but, we're, but we take them in. So I'm like, well, why are we mad? We took them. We spend all that time being fucking assholes to the U.S. about it. We ask them to close their border, and then the second they do, we're like, oh, you're being, insup- you're being assholes to the poor people. I'm like, yeah. I don't know. I think if you were going to do it, I'd say take your stand and hold on to it. Either say like, no, no, no. We don't want these people coming across and U.S., if you can stop them, go for it. Or if we're going to say it's cruel to stop them. So if they come to the U.S., fine. If they cross the U.S. to get to Canada, sure, we'll process them. We would like for you to kind of tell us that they're coming, but okay. And and this is where I'm ending up on it's it's just 
don't know. Oh, by the way, so it is past midnight now, so it's officially July 1st, 2018, so happy Canada Day! 151 years since we got our confederate... Is it Dominion or Federation? Or Confederation, I can't... I wish I was a better Canadian history scholar. I'm not as good as I should be. Try to be good for the Canadian military. And I've actually done pretty well on that. Specifically around the World War II. Um, a little bit less on Korea. I know about our involvement in the deserts. <sighs> Desert Storm, our involvement in um, Afghanistan and the global war on terror. And stuff like that. It's, it's yeah. It's kind of interesting how people's um, one of the main reasons I want to start this podcast, which I've largely failed to do f- for most of the time, was the idea of having differing um, viewpoints on not just differing opinion, but differing viewpoints in different areas of uh, people's expertise. Because sometimes it's interesting just to have people say or talk about various things that you don't understand or you don't know much about and, and to learn from them. I mean, if you know nothing about music, like I know very little about music um, besides from a few music copyright things. Like I, I don't play any instrument. I can't read music anymore. I did in elementary school because we played the freaking recorder, but that's about it. Um, it, it just... Uh, how do I follow this up and keep going? You, the whole point of this podcast was to learn. And just go into a direction and find out. Also to interview people and just find out what's going on. Like, like I wanted to interview a couple of musician friends, both for the enjoyment of, like, why do you play your instrument? Why do you enjoy this instrument? Um, what instruments do you want to learn? Blah, blah, blah. And also, any of them who have sold music, like, what is the music copyright laws? Like, how do you deal with that? How do you deal with the international scene? How do you deal with Canada's laws versus the United States? Because... I think because the internet is such an interesting object that exists in this day and age, um, how the real world can't function really without the internet, but the internet could totally function without the real world. Which is funny, because I think the internet is a, is a substrate of the real world, and the real world, and yet it can function without us, uh, arguably. I mean, the truth is, is that if you, took, if you shut down every single server, the internet would be dead, which requires the real world interacting with it. So they interact with each other. So the internet is encompassed in the real world, but the internet also separates itself from the real world in a way of ice of like being an insulator. And I'm using a phrase um, from uh, one of the documentaries um, about 9/11, where one of the cameras was talking about how a viewfinder and a camera, specifically the the video cameras, those news anchors had, those news uh, cameramen had in 9/11, um, 2001. They only had black and white screens. Uh, for the through the viewfinder, so you 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 were insulated in a way from what from the action, and I think that's how the internet's also become is it's insulating us from these direct moments that are happening in the world that we're able to see almost in real time because of streaming services and various other 
brouhaha. That's the first time I think I've used that word on this podcast. Um, but the but the way how this is moving is the internet is having a real impact in the real world, but we ourselves are not accept- absorbing that impact probably the way we should be, or we're using it as an insulation tool so that we that impact is real, but not in the same way it would be if we saw it. So, like, you know, we we watch these car crash videos and these motorcyclist fight videos, stuff like that. It would be completely different to be the guy who actually saw it happen in real life. And I shouldn't even say real life. Like it would be, it'd be crazy watching uh, the da- a dash cam video of a guy who gets sideswiped versus being the guy who actually got sideswiped. It's a completely different experience. And because it's not you who's having it, you're isolated and you're 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 insulated from the experience. And your emotions can run different ways. Because you're not having the exact you're not having the same adrenaline and and emotional response that the person who had it. Now, if you're in a car crash, you're like and I'm not going to say a bad one. Like, let's say somebody swipes, sideswipes you or something. or Even if it's just a small hip of the airbags explode or go off on you, you have your fight or, fli- your fight or flight reflexes from the adrenaline is, abs- is like topped out practically. You're probably going to be in shock if you experience an airbag f- for a bit. And when you're f- fight or flight, you're going to have very raw emotions. Now, the first thing is get the hell out of your vehicle after the crashes come. But once your rational part of your brain starts picking up, before your emotional part has ratcheted itself back down, you might go from flight to fight because the guy comes over and is like, oh, I'm so sorry. And you might, like, you know, we can see this happen with road rage videos, might take it out on the guy. And yet you could watch that video from your computer, from your tablet, from your phone, and say, I wouldn't do that. But the truth is, you weren't there. You didn't experience everything. Another thing is that these car crash videos, specifically any video we're watching right now, is a small segment of what actually happens. And which is the interesting thing when you think about consequences and and TV and, and the new media and and the idea of these, um, the long stories, long story idea of podcasts versus the short clips, like the you know the the Snapchats and the and the Instagram videos and these small, short experiences, is that the short ones are snippets, much like how how social media has kind of designed us where we only want to see the good things in life, but podcasts bring out the long form talks, so you can't really. Avoid the bad things. And I'm not saying that you're going into it only to talk about the good things in the podcast. But human nature is to cover up the shit that's going on in your life. Like, you had a bad day with your boss and like that. And yet, we also see that we have this desire to see that. You know, car crash videos, gunfight videos, um, you know, earthquakes and things like this. Um, how... Um, crazily enough school fight videos in the United States and and probably in Canada and probably in other places and just stuff like this it it thrives and I don't know and I don't know if that's just a cultural failing that we're experiencing or if there's more to it 
that we we can't explain. Speaking of which, a uh, weird tangent to go off on. I remember back in the day when uh, pop cans, uh, so, you know, Coke, Nestle, uh, had the thin mouths or the, sh- the th- smaller mouths. And I remember exactly when it was either Coors or Budweiser came with the idea of the thick mouth for the can to make it easier to drink. I, I do remember when they, when they started doing that in the um, mid-'90s and then how it took still a few... I, I took like three years from it to go to beer cans to, you know, soda cans, uh, soda aluminum cans. And it's just interesting about thinking about that. <laughs> I know it's weird to bring up. But I just noticed that, but it's just h- how, if you didn't know these were smaller, if the, if the mouths of these uh, aluminum cans that you could pop open were smaller, you wouldn't even think about it. And also go back to even how beer cans had a different shape. They didn't used to have the, the like how the pop cans have the pressed in bezel on the top uh, for the top and slightly shaped uh, bottom to make it easier for them to sit on surfaces. They used to look more like Campbell's soup cans. Beer cans did. I don't know if Coke cans always did. or Well, no, Coke cans used to be f- much flatter too. But it's just interesting how this technology and our, our, our consumption of it has changed how we desire of it. How we want to drink our drinks faster. <laughs> how we want to drink our beer faster, which I don't drink beer or, or any sort of alcohol. And how we drink, want to drink our Coke faster. So then Coke bought the pat, probably bought the rights to the, or like the, bought a licensing to the patent to then put it on their thing. Or maybe it was a factory issue or blah, blah, blah. It's just an interesting tangent to go off on. But it goes on about how technology, and I've been rambling here for a little bit, and it's almost an hour and 30 minutes in, about how we, this is going to be unedited, besides from just gain correction, by the way. Um, my last episode, I really heavily, heavily edited out a lot of my pauses, because I listened to it and I couldn't stand them. And I said I was going to talk not faster, but more cohesively, or at least try to. And I just have a pause, so I kind of fucked that up. The point was um, specifically about technology and how our consumption of it is becoming much more... I don't want to say hedonistic, how, about how, how we're doing it to keep ourselves happy, although we are doing this more often. And we notice that... Um, and I, I can't say this about depression, if depression rates have gone up or down. But the perception that we are living either a better life than we are is what we're pumping out more often. Now, I'm not saying we, that, that people didn't do that in the past. I'm not saying that your next door neighbor 20, 30 years ago didn't do that with the white picket fence and blah, blah, blah. It's just that we didn't know about it as much. It's like we saw them when they came home from work and when they left for work and maybe we met them for lunch or dinner or sometime because we're friends or maybe at the park with them when the kids were playing or something like that. Or maybe the, you know, school play or something. But we didn't used to. But now we're bombarded by this. And I'm speaking of this because one of my friends, who's a photographer, um, has had luck with some brands shooting these series and about how he's doing all this really cool stuff, and I I, I don't begrudge him for it at all. And 
I have to very carefully say what I'm going to say here because I don't want to seem like a dick. But I sent him a request a few months ago about wanting to be on it. And to be honest, after thinking about it, I sent that request in the worst mind of, I need content for this versus, does he have a story to tell? And he does. I know my friend does. And I would love to hear it. But I also know that when I asked that, I don't know if he knew or how he perceived how he asked it, but it probably sounded more like, I need you to talk about something because I'm not interesting enough, and I freaking want to exploit you. Versus how I, if I was going to ask him today, I would say, you've been doing some pretty cool stuff. I think people would like to know some of this story. Not just all the good, because we're only seeing the good. Because great stories aren't just joy fests. Great stories are overcoming adversary. Adverse, um, you know. <laughs> adverse, oh God. You know, overcoming, um, I guess it is adversary. I, I can't pronounce the fucking word today. Uh, adversity. There, now I said it. But, um, you know, great stories are coming over adversity. And I think when we give up telling about the hardships, we become two... We, we, we go from three-dimensional beings almost to one-dimensional beings. Now, you notice how I don't really talk about my life personally on this podcast? I'm talking more about... I mean... When we do games night, we talk about, you know, some stuff like that. But how I don't dwell on my life, more because of the idea of an, uh, being anonymous, sort of. I mean, I go by Jaws. You can go onto my personal website and probably figure out who's paying for it just by going to, uh, you know, doing the who is or whatever the hell that thing is to search it up. I'm not being super secret about it. I told you where I live Sort of can probably guess my age. Talked about my brother. You know my brother's wife's name on here. Here, and my name's Justin. That's a. And I guess I'm kind of insulating myself in case I ever had to go through a career change and stuff. And maybe I need to give up that fear a little bit. Granted, I'm still not going to talk about about my personal job career on here unless there's a reason to talk about it and there probably will be because I plan to interview my dad on this podcast in the upcoming future not just interview but just talk to him about it about things um, probably we'll make it a success story uh, we'll probably talk about we're doing an endeavor right now and, and needless to say there are some secrets and trade stuff that I don't want to bring in that's why I haven't talked about this because there's some trade secrets and ideas and stuff that shouldn't be talked about but there is an endeavor going on, and maybe once we success and launch, we're going to talk more about it. But I more want to talk about Dad's earlier life. But I think that that Facebook and social media has become such a it's weird thing where we're only showing either major positives or the, all this cool stuff. It's like, oh, look at this great picture I just took, or look at this great video I just thing, or look at this great thing I just watched, or blah blah blah. Now I'm guilty of it too, sharing memes with my friends. Only, but my memes are, you know, I guess I 
can't say like <laughs> I'm not going to talk about dank memes because we talked about that with Nick uh, in an earlier episode. But it, it, it's just this thing of this expectation that thing is going that everything's going fantastically, and being somebody who was depressed earlier in his life, who really did at one point think that. Uh, how do I describe this? This is a weird turn for this episode. I started off with wanting to talk about tariffs and immigration, and look at me. I'm almost on depression here. This is a ramble. <laughs> but I did at my point really believe that by the time I turned 18, I was probably going to be dead. That, that There was nothing beyond 18 years old for me. There was no point. Now I'm past that. I, I Do I have sleepless nights worrying about things in the future? Of course I do. I want this podcast to be successful. But yet, at the same time, I will not look at the analytics for it because I am scared to start measuring myself based on that. Because I've seen from other... I, I've heard from other YouTubers, specifically Jim Sterling and and Total Biscuit, who, John Total Biscuit Bane, who's passed away, um, is about how people perceive you and then the liking of it or the, the 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 numerics don't tell the full story they tell a part of the story and that's not a healthy part of the story you want to hear or you want to live by that could be even more detrimental to your psyche than not and if you come across a point where you are in this depression or blah 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 or you know these ultra stressed out times when you start following the idea of you want any sort of attention, self-destructive intention is very easy to create. And it gets people responding. Specifically, if, if it's that stuff that gets close to the line, like, should I maybe talk the, intervene? But it's not there. It's like, eh, this is kind of sketchy where he's going, but all right. Like, and for people who have dealt with that or experienced that or seen people experiencing that, they, they, they can see it better. And again, this is a weird, weird thing. I think I should make, maybe talk about this um, more in the next episode. I probably will. Um, it'll actually be a good thing to talk about um, specifically. Uh, I wouldn't talk about mental health completely. I talk more about my. Dep- depression in, in a I guess I have to see how far I'm willing to go f- with it with it and, and I don't want to do it as if I'm being self-centered here but, and I will I will caveat myself by saying that most of my depression was based around junior high and high school and a little bit of university now my university depression was nowhere near as bad as my high school depression and my university depression wasn't stupid uh and i don't want it to be detrimental or knock down anybody who's suffering from depression or any sort of social anxiety stuff like that my university life shit was because i was shit in university i was legitimately acting like shit in university i was skipping classes i wasn't working as hard as i should have i was getting the grades i deserved sometimes i didn't think so sometimes i worked my ass off and i still didn't get granted in the university, you also deal with the fact where some people are, some professors are just not bred teachers. They're just not great people at teaching. 
But high school and junior high, that's much harder, and it's more common to experience things. Man, I'll go into that later in another episode. I'll have to find a time I wanted to get a specific person in. I have somebody in mind who I want to have on that podcast just to talk about this. Um, and it will be interesting to get him on if he wants to do it. I'll have to approach him about it. This is not going to be a quick podcast. This is not going to happen anytime soon. And by anytime soon, I don't mean it. I don't think it's going to happen in July. It's probably not going to happen in August. It may not even happen in October. I I hope it happens this calendar year in 2018, but who who knows? Who knows where what's going to happen? But suffice to say, that's a... That's what I'm going to put down my notes, something that we, sh- we should talk about. Because th- this guy, he's moving into an area, and I think we can then expand on to um, empathetic situations involving not just depressed groups, but other groups who are socially, I wouldn't say marginalized. I mean, maybe they are. I'm not the best at de- dealing with societal things. <laughs> I admit that. But, you know, like, um, what's come out of the LGBTQ, um, you know, the, the whole first started with the homosexual rights movement, and then it's expanded into this very, these larger conglomerate of rights and subgroups, and it's becoming not really messy, but confusing to the outsider and the insiders who know it, who um, and there's some insiders who are who have slightly insidious um, insidious uh, beliefs and ideas, and the their supporters who don't who are from what I can tell ninety nine percent of the time are people who are working for the betterment of the group they're trying to f- fight for, and they don't want to be detrimental, but it, it it's just too much of like well I have to be. Um, you know, I, I I have to. What's the what's the freaking phrase? Uh, I can't believe I can't remember this phrase. I I used it multiple times a day. It's uh. I can't believe I I, I absolutely know this. Oh, virtue signal is one of them. I don't want to use virtue signal, but like they're trying to say like I'm on your side for sure. But they don't completely disagree with the other side. Like they, this is a murky area, but they they don't want to be seen as transgressive. I guess would be one thing, a word. They don't want to be seen as instigators of violence or crime or anything. I, I should remove violence from that, specifically physical violence. But say like, they don't want to be seen as an oppression group just for the sake of being a pre- um um. Maybe resisting or actually, um, you know, counteracting or being countercultural that movement because they don't understand it all the way. So they're kind of j- going too far the other way. It's like we, and this might also be involved with privileges and all that other stuff that I personally don't agree with a lot of the claims of privileges and stuff. I understand why people would make the statements that they do around them. But if we've looked at history, these groups that have power can shift quite dramatically, quite quickly. 
Now, the reason it hasn't is the reason why we don't think it is happening as much as it is now. It is, I, I grant you that the, the Caucasian Europeans have had a ridiculous position of power for a long period of time. But we also have to remember that the history of Europe really is important post um, the Dark Ages when they finally started to reunify and fight outside of you know the outside of the Middle Ages because in the Middle Ages Europe was fighting with itself it didn't give a shit what was going on anywhere else so how the heck was a you know um, an Englishman living in northern England really like opposing his rights on somebody in China when at the same period of time as far as we're able to tell historically China was considerably more advanced in their thought and belief and their their knowledge Let's not forget that India also had, India and various other civilizations throughout history have been at the top. And what we've noticed um, in that in the originally most civilizations started either in the Middle East or Northern uh, or Northeastern Africa, that's where the power was. So Egypt uh, was one place. You have Mesopotamia, you, you have Babylon, you've got Greece, you've got Rome, but you've also got, you know, the Byzantines, and you also have. Um, the Trojans, you've got all these groups based around the Mediterranean that had an incredible amount of knowledge at their time. You also have India, you also have um, the Cambodians in their history, the Angkorian people of Cambodia, having a Hydropolis, which was huge, which now is even larger because we're finding out that these temples built farther away from Angkor Wat are part of the same freaking city. And yet, because history, um, most of the Western history has been written by Westerners from a Western perspective, we view the world as only ever been seen from a Western perspective. I think that's a fault of history that should be re- that they should try, and, and good historians are trying to find out and learn. That's why we're trying to learn everything we can about our history, because unfortunately, history has been written by the winner. And the winners who colonized the world were the Europeans, because they um I, once they started realizing like shit we're running out of resources on our small area and we're so diverse that we're fighting each other over every fucking thing we need to go somewhere else we need to sail across that fucking sea and find a shortcut to india and china to get because the land route is too fucking dangerous that was an amazing thing that they did and that's why from the, you know, from post-Christopher Columbus, the Europeans have commanded history up until the end of World War II. And then it became the United States. But we see China's now in a head position, and so is India. Like, these are countries that are becoming, like, now, I'm prefacing this, I'm going a little bit long here. India is not a first world nation. They have parts of their country that would be considered first world. They have other parts that definitely would not. And that's a growing pain that they're going to have to figure out what to do. But you also have this, that issue in parts of Africa. You also have that issue in parts of China. China's been a lot better, but China's also used military force. has used their one government rule to help them, uh, I wouldn't say adapt, but I'd say force this growth into them. And I think what we're going to see 
in the future is is that we're going to see a less centralized world, which would be good as as a libertarian perspective. But history will also be much more crowdsourced. Not as in like learning about, not as teaching about, but well, teaching about would be crowdsourced would be important. But also just the development of history is going to be much more scattered. We're not going to take one document from one place and say, this is history. We're going to say, like, well, that's one part of it. Now let's learn a few other stories. There's many more angles here. And we know from periods of time that some history is the only history we know of certain civilizations is from the ones who conquered them wrote about it. I guess randomness and virtual signaling and social justice and all this other stuff that I've been bouncing around on my head. And now I'm almost an hour and 45 minutes into this uh, podcast, which I'll, I'll post up very quickly. I haven't named this episode. I'll, I'll name it in the, in the title of the, um, uh, when I put on the, uh, on Podbean and talk about it a little bit. I'm going to put a corresponding blog post on my website. I haven't touched on my website in a long time and I really freaking should. Uh, I need to clean that up. I need to pay Simon to fix that. I need to get him on this podcast. Fuck. I have a thing to do. <clears throat> anyway, um, just writing down these ideas and these stuff. And I'm also going to buy some more gear. You know, you always have visions and you want to make sure these visions work out. Sometimes they don't. But it's better I at least tried. Tried to do something instead of sat around being like, should I? Shouldn't I? So one thing I think that we that we as humans need to understand is that re- regret is a powerful thing, and our brains are also incredibly powerful, and our emotions can direct our pathway. And we need we need to take like I don't want to say you need to take more risks or take more calculated risks, but you need to be more open that things are going to be much more chaotic in the future. I think the the idea of the the major automation of various jobs and then robots and AI being able to pick up other jobs we're going to start we're going to see a really weird trend now I'm not saying that this is going to be fast might be might not be but it will be painful in a way that we don't understand right now because all we've seen is robots replacing us in factories we have not seen the next level yet and when that comes that might be that might not be painful as in I lost my job. That might be like I I don't understand. It might be like literally too much of a technological leap for our brains to fully comprehend it for months, if not years. I don't know. We'll have to see like when it happens. I'm not a no, I'm not a, I'm one of these futurists that, that is generally optimistic about the future of mankind. I think we're going to colonize the moon. I think we're going to colonize Mars. I think we're, we're, we're like, we're probably going to be, and we, I mean, I, I optimistically hope that we're going to be a spacefaring species, that we're going to actually get beyond our solar system and go out and colonize other planets and terraform worlds and, you know, live this sci- beautiful science fiction belief that, that we don't, we are not going to be stuck on one planet our species is not going to only live on Earth. 
And we're actually going to be the first species to transcend our bounds of one single planet and go somewhere else. I would love that if that comes true. It's probably not going to come true in my lifetime. Granted, medical technology is going so freaking insane, and at my age, could it be that I, I'm able to upload my consciousness into a computer or not? I don't know. I don't know what in the next 60 years has, next 70 years has. I don't know. It's terrifying and, and, and awe-inspiring to think of at the same time. But I understand where people's skepticism of this is coming because there's so many unknown variables and being that we are finite beings, we can only predict finite beliefs. And we're also very bad at making predictions. Specifically, anything that is more than one or two variables, our predictions are terrible. And we can see that just with economics. It's like, well, if one thing happens, we can predict this. But if that's everything else stays the same, it's like, well, if you're going to make an argument where only one thing's going to change, you're doing a very... Uh, Grant, I'm speaking as if that's all we've, we've... We've been very bad at doing multivariable arguments because we're bad at understanding multiple vari- variable um, issues. We always try to make them as simple as possible, which is nice for the layman and for people like me who maybe aren't fully educated in the matters or maybe, in fact, unknowingly, uh, unknowingly ignorant of the matters. Or maybe knowingly ignorant. I mean, it's possible I could be that too. too. I'm not going to discount that possibility. This is where being sobering podcast... Anyway, the the um, the way is is I think that these predictions about AI and stuff like that are shots in the dark. Now, I'm not saying it's not impossible because we have seen how the when Facebook built their AI, it created its own language to commu- to f- speak because it was way easier to do it that way. And they freaked out and shut it down. Actually, I should say that. That's a preface story that I've only heard from second-party sources. I've never heard that from first-party. So that could even be a rumor that has no basis in reality. I don't know. But I do know that people quote both Kurzweil and Elon Musk about AI is eventually going to kill mankind and stuff like this. Um... Have we written ourselves in with so much science fiction that we believe that the robots are really going to be the end of us? That we are going to create the... That we will manufacture our replacements? I mean... It's interesting to think that we're arrogant enough to believe that's possible. It's also interesting to believe that we're arrogant to believe it's impossible, too. Two sides of the coin. But how arrogant of us to believe that we're gods, that we're going to create our replacement that will wipe us out. And it's terrifying to think that we're moving in a direction where that is becoming much more of a possibility, considering how little we actually know. Now, I'm not arguing that we can't do this without having all the knowledge in the universe, because if we had all the knowledge in the universe, we'd be fucking po- we'd be fucking bored with our lives there'd be no reason to write f- fiction there'd be no reason to read stories there'd be no reason to do anything if we have all the answers life is boring it's because of adversity that we continue going on 
Now, adversity can be hard, and it can be actually joyful when we get past it. <laughs> sort of becoming a little self-help thing here. Now, I, I'm all over the place. And I just had an ST. That was it. And I had that over an hour, uh, over two hours ago. Granted, it's now 1 a.m. Uh, mountain time. <laughs> so my brain's probably going crazy, and I'm having my second win. Uh, but I guess the point is, is that it, for people who believe in a higher power, like I do, and I'm not going to say I'm perfect on that, um, but it's arrogant to believe that we're smart enough to create a species that will replace us, that will probably destroy us. If, if the, all the science fiction authors and Elon Musk and Ray Kurzweil... Now, Ray, Ray talks more about the singularity, which is a terrifying yet slightly nicer prospect than Elon Musk has been putting out. And I'm not going to say that Elon's wrong. He is a very smart man. Um, I don't think that Peter Thiel disagrees with him on that. And then, you know, I also think that Elon's a better marketeer than he actually is businessman by evidence of how Tesla has been going. As soon as the subsidies and the uh, tax rebates for Tesla starts running out, boy, do those things not sell as well as they should. And you, you just ask questions like, well, why is this going this way? Why is this going that way? Anyway, um, to keep on the, this train of path, uh, train of thought pathway that I'm going on, which is even more interesting, we know more about the stars in our general vicinity. Like, the, the few stars and the few solar systems, at least based on the knowledge that we are able to interpret than we do about a lot of our ocean on this planet. Which is quite crazy. That the, the oceans on our planet we have less knowledge of than we do of general knowledge of Mars. Now, I admit that the ocean is a more complex system than Mars. But if we really know as much about Mars as we think we know, we probably don't. I mean, we could probably put up one of those stupid little progress bars of 0 to 100% what do we know about Mars. I would say it's a red planet. It's smaller than the Earth. It's got a longer... Like, you know, there's empirical stuff that we can definitely slam up there, but I don't know how much percentage that that information that we have empirically would slam up straight now. And then we go on to, well, what was Mars history like? Can we confirm there was never any bacteria or any other life form at some point on that planet or not? Was there vegetation on Mars? It's like, well, we don't know that yet. We have theories. We haven't proved that. Uh, how powerful an eruption be of uh, Olympus Mons? We don't know. We'd have to see one. We can guess. Um, how hard would it be to blow? Like, you know, the beautiful thing is our mind is incredible. Our minds are complex enough to even entertain these thoughts, which is amazing. And we create these amazing situations where we try to answer them. But I think that the the issue is is that we are dramatic beings, so we go for the dramatic answers. And some of that stuff is just not as dramatic as it wants to be. I mean, um, yeah. I mean, it's like the, 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 re, um, the article, uh, science article where we are probably alone in the universe. 
that we can see only so far in the universe and probably if there's another species out there that's sentient and it may become spacefaring and stuff like that they are so far beyond the horizon of our universe that they may as well not even exist we will never be able to observe them and they will probably never be able to observe us and if that paper is 100% correct, and based on the information that I have not read the paper, I only read Ronald Bailey's talking about it on reason, is there's it's kind of um, an interesting idea to think about us being so alone, and yet it, it, it's sad that when you think about it, it, it you know with no other intelligent life out there that we could at least get contact as of now, and we're fairly certain they're not observing us and we know we can't observe them. It's kind of depressing, specifically because our minds go to these thoughts of like, I wish they were out there. I wish they were out there. I wish they were out there. I wish, wish, wish. It's like, I don't think they are actually. Now, I don't know. Um, yeah, I, I think I should end this here. My, I'm starting to actually get really, really tired. My eyes are hurting like a heck. My contacts should come out. Uh, these ones get to be thrown out because it's the end of the month. <laughs> I need to get into it tomorrow and go to sleep. Um, anyway, uh, for those who listen, thanks. Uh, hopefully I... <laughs> Have some more either groundbreaking or non-groundbreaking thoughts that you, you find worthy of listening to, and hopefully I get some more guests on. I I just don't want to seem like an asshole inviting people on just to get them on, just to have content. I actually want to have a, a reasonable talk. That's why I got to go, go talk to my friend who's that photographer and just, just basically... Like, I, I need to apologize to him about how I sent it. He never responded back, but I need to basically say, like, sorry, I, I sent that message in the, the worst way possible. Like, if you ever get any time, like, I, I would love to have you on. But I want it to be convenient for you and, good, like, you know. Just, just. And the worst thing is, is that I, I, this has been on my brain for about three weeks, and I haven't done it yet. One thing about being human is, is I, this isn't a guilt. It's just like, I need to own up to that. I kind of screwed up and I kind of ask forgiveness from him for it. And I just haven't gotten around to it. And it's just the stupid fear that he's going to reject me. And I know he won't. He'll probably say like, he's just busy with his life and that's fair. And I should accept that. Anyway. Um, well, this has been another episode of Stories from the Crisper Drawer. I have no idea what I'm going to name this one. Uh, out of the fridge, I don't know. <laughs> Maybe I should name these episodes like Stories from the Ranting Pickle. That might be a funny one. Yeah, I think I'm going to run with that. Um, you know, immigrant... I don't know. You'll find out in the title when it gets posted. <laughs> As will I. All right. Uh, thanks for listening, and have yourself a, well, hopefully you had yourself a good July, a good June, and hopefully you have yourself a good July. I'll be back soon. This has been Stories from the Christmas Drawer with Jaws.